Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Genesis chapter 1. We're looking here at uh, Genesis, and we're going to be going through that during summer. And last week in Genesis 1-1, we saw the importance of that simple verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw that the importance of that verse is that there is a God. Amen? There is an eternal God that created all things, as we're going to see in more detail today. Today, as we continue in the first chapter of Genesis, many desire to use this creation account for apologetic purposes, to prove that there is a God. And I believe you could do that, but what's interesting here is that's not really the purpose of Genesis 1 and the author's intent. While this may be of some value, that's not keeping with his purpose for writing. For his purpose of writing Genesis was written to the people of God, not to unbelievers. Men who refuse to believe in creationism or the fact that there is a God or that God created all things do not do so for a lack of facts or proof. We see that in Romans chapter 1, where he says in verse 18 that all things, the visible and the invisible things, point to God. It's not due to their greater knowledge, for Psalms 14 says, a fool has said in their heart, there is no God. And it's not due to any of those things, but it's due to a lack of faith. Genesis is much more of a declaration than a defense. After all, Genesis 1.1 assumes God's existence. In the beginning, as we saw last week, the author of Genesis spends no time trying to defend the existence of God. It's presumed He is. To be honest, I think that's where all philosophy ought to begin with, is he is. Instead of I am, or I think, therefore I am. And if there is a God, we ask these questions. What does that mean for us, if there is a God, if there is a creator? If there is a beginning? Who is he? What does he want? Where do I fit in with him? Genesis begins to answer those questions, and as we explore it, we hope to answer these as best as we can. Here we see it's in Genesis where God begins to reveal himself to the human race. And Today we're going to continue the story of the Bible as it begins with the first chapter of creation of the Bible. Or creation is the first story of the Bible. And it begins with the creation of a good world, made by a wise, good king. Father, I pray that you'd come and just be with us this morning. I pray that you would just begin to inform us through your Holy Spirit by your word. For some of us, we may be very uh, um, more curious. We want scientific facts, or or we want things that we can take and, and use in arguments and debates. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand what the importance of Genesis 1 is. Lord, I pray that you be with me as I speak. 
Lord, let me speak words that are edifying. I pray that you would fill up what's lacking in my knowledge and any skill. Lord, that you may be in order to be glorified. And I pray that you begin the work in the hearts of those that are listening. I pray that they have read this and they've been preparing by praying as I have this week. Let us do that. Let us come not saying just teach me, but come expecting what can we learn? How can I transform? What do I need to do? What is this calling me to do? We pray this in your name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 24, I pray that you have read it. By the way, each Wednesday I send out what the, the message is going to be for that week. I encourage you to read it. I'd like for you to read Genesis with us as we go through, uh, uh, through the summer. You've got about 12 weeks to do so. Just read through it. And so it's encouraging as we go into We won't read every passage of Scripture uh, in, 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 in total, but we're going to show uh, we're going to work our way through it but in genesis chapter 1 through 24 we get a very familiar portion of scripture we see the creation of the heavens and the earth the water and the land the sun and the moon the plants and the animals as well as time and all the natural laws that govern the universe what's interesting here in this account is that the first three days describe the forming of the environment the water, the earth, and the sky. And the second three days describe the filling of the inhabitants in the order in which they were created. One thing we all must understand is that though Genesis 1 does give an account of creation, it doesn't tell us everything. And I think I'm still here making some noises. I'm going to try to do what I can to keep that from doing that. And though it gives us an account of creation, it doesn't tell us everything we would like to know about creation. And I know that can be frustrating and sometimes difficult to understand, especially if you're of a curious mind or you have a scientific-type bent in your You just want to know everything. Well, how did he create it? How did he do this? How does this work together? Give me the time frames. Well, if that's your desire with this message, you will walk away disappointed. Because that's not what Genesis is trying to get to us this morning. As we'll see in more detail, the writer of Genesis, again, is not so much interested in relating to us a scientific and natural facts, but to reveal a creative God. And that's the title of the message this morning, the creative God. In other words, the purpose of the creation account is to display the character and power of God not to satisfy your curiosity. Genesis 1, though, does inform us how God created. And I want to give you four ways or four things that I believe that the writer of Genesis 1 is trying to impart to us about God and creation. The first thing that you need to understand, and for those of you who like to take notes, is number one is that God created out of nothing. He created from nothing. It starts with God created... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We saw that last week. What this means is that God is the owner of creation. He made it. It is His. There was nothing there before. He created without the use of pre-existing materials. There was no uh, primordial soup out there. There was no energy out there. There was no matter out there. God says, well, let me put this together. The world, the creation account is not a a tinker toy story. It's not an etch-a-sketch. He didn't need all that. 
He created from nothing. He didn't merely reshape or refashion what was already there. That means before God began to create the universe, nothing else existed except God Himself. All of what exists in the past, present, and future is begun by God's act of bringing it into existence. We see in Revelation 4.11, God is being praised because He created all things. The fact that God created the universe out of nothing means that this world and all who were in it were created for a purpose and have meaning. And that purpose is rooted in God our Creator. By saying that God created the universe out of nothing, we can also ascertain that there was a time when nothing outside of God existed. So the trees, the sun, the moon, and matter itself is not God. Scripture says that there was a time when all that we see, every element of the universe, had not yet been created or existed. Nothing existed before God or exists apart from God That's what we find here in Genesis chapter 1. Because God created all things. He is the Lord of all things. And only God deserves to be worshipped. And obviously as you go through, I don't know how many of you have been through, uh, what world, uh, uh, I can't remember the title of them anymore, the Western civilization, or even to Eastern cultures, and the fact that people would take a piece of wood, chop it down, use it to build a house, use it for firewood, use it to... Uh, make a couch, and then take the rest of it, fashion a God, and then bow down before that God. Of their own hands. For God is the only one who's worthy to be worshipped. Not only did He create the things that are visible, but what we see here in, in this chapter is that God created all things that are invisible, both in the heavens and in the earth. The creation of the entire universe includes the creation of the unseen, the spiritual realm of existence. In addition to creating the visible, tangible, physical universe, God created the angels and other kinds of heavenly beings. He also created heaven as a place where His presence is especially evident. And this would fly in the, fat, fat, in the face of many, many Mormonism-type beliefs in which there was some spiritual realm filled with gods who then just worked things out and said, will you take this planet and you take that planet? I don't know who I was speaking to. I think we were in a car talking about Mormonism yesterday, and one of the things, this is off topic, but one of the things that interests me, if you're a Mormon, you believe that there is a God. And you believe that one day that you too will be a God and that you will have your own planet, which all sounds all kind of neat and dandy. But to be honest, I can barely take care of my own office. I'm not sure if I can handle a whole world on my own. But even for the Mormonisms here, they worship a god. And I cannot remember his name. I'll get it wrong and I'll get myself in trouble. But my question is, if that is the one god of this world, what about gods of the other world? Show me the first self-existent god. Why do you worship a lesser god? That's really what you have in Mormonism. It's the worship of a lesser god and one whom yourself will one day attain to his status. It's not a god but I think I want to worship. In the book of Nehemiah, Ezra prays, You are Lord, you alone, you have made the heavens, the heavens and the heavens with all their hosts. 
And in his letter to the Colossians, Paul specifies that in Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Psalms chapter 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born or you were brought from the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This verse shows that God is eternal. We looked at that last week. And in contrast, it shows that the universe is not eternal. The universe had a beginning. It is temporal. Eternality is not an attribute of God that God has given to the universe. He created and sustains it. It would challenge God's independence and His sovereignty if matter existed apart from God. Then what inherent right would God have to rule over it and use it for His glory if it existed in the same time as He did? So in other words, when we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then He goes to create all the visible and invisible creation, we see that God created from nothing. It wasn't Him and some mold. It wasn't Him and some dirt. Him and some matter and energy. But God creates from nothing. That's the God that we worship. The second thing that we see in this passage here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates by His Word. God calls things into existence by His Word. Seven times in Genesis, as you read it, in the account of creation we read, and God said, let there be light, let there be water, let it be separated, let there be birds of all kinds, let there be um, animals of all kinds and so forth. God literally spoke the universe into existence by His Word. And He created something where there was nothing before. God spoke and it was done. There's no Baptist joke about the Big Bang. And it's semi-true. Yeah, God said, let there be, and bang, there it was. In Hebrew chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the world was prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We need to understand that. God speaks and creates by His Word. Whether it's the creation of the mountains, the creation of the ocean, creation of life, to the creation which He speaks life into me as a new creation in Christ. One day a scientist approached God and said, God, we don't need you anymore. Science has finally figured out a way to create life out of nothing. We can now do what you did in the beginning, and that seems to be the hubris of of scientists and men today. God says, oh yeah, is that so? Yes, we can, said the scientists. We can take dirt and form it into a human likeness, and now we can breathe life into it, thus creating man. That's very interesting, God said. Show me how that's done. So the scientist reaches down, grabs a handful of dirt, starts to mold the soil into the shape of a man, and God interrupts by saying, no, 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 go get your own dirt. Even in the creation of the thing, so we can, make, we can now uh, you know, create life from test tubes, we can do all this and all that, but yet it still comes from God. He speaks by His Word, creating something out of nothing. Yes, God has given man some inventive, creative ways to do things, but yet in the end, we still rely on what God has created, the building blocks of life 
you and I were to make something, we need raw materials to work with. Not so with God, as Paul said. He calls things that are not as though they were God create by speaking. And God said, let there be. So God creates out of nothing, and God creates by His Word. The third thing as we go through first, or Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates excellence. God creates excellence. When God finished His work of creation, what does it say? It said that He took delight in it. He said it was good. It was very good. At the end of every stage of creation, God saw what it was that He had done, and He said it is good. It's a word that means excellent. It means delight in. Then at the very end of the six days of creation, verse 31, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. God delighted in the creation that He had made, just as He had purposed to do. Now you and I, we can read through these passages, and we've read through this passage probably multiple times throughout our Christian lives and as children. And we come to that, and we know God said it was good, but do we ever understand what that means? that God delights in His work, that God saw that it was good and that it was excellent, that calls you and I to a different type of attitude about the world. And even though there is now sin in the world, you and I have not seen this world without sin, but the material creation is still good in God's sight and should be seen as good by us as well. This knowledge will free us from a false belief that the use and enjoyment of material creation is wrong. For there's those types of people who say, well, the sin is now in the world, then we just ought to just let it just go to hell in a handbasket. That's similar to many who Paul fought, who said those who forbid marriage and order people to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there's those who will say, you cannot enjoy this sin-saturated world. Yet God still says that it's good, and He delighted in it. Yes, it's tainted by sin. Paul even says that this world, the creation, groans waiting for its renewal. But Paul says to look at this earth and say it's not good, to not enjoy it, would be given into the doctrines of demons. But in the same way, when God says that it's excellent, that it's good, that it's very good, you and I also ought to be committed to creation care as good stewards of God's gift. And I know this can be very close to many of you, some type of political statement, and I don't mean it in that way at all. I'm not talking about environmentalism and all sorts of ways in which we make uh, creation God. Not to do that. But yet we ought to look and see that it's beautiful. I don't know how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon, but it's beautiful to look on there. This weekend the men went to uh, Ironwood Camp, a men's retreat, and we're up in the desert, and you first think, who wants to take a retreat in the desert? At one point it was, what, 112 out there. I mean, it's just dust and sand and tumbleweeds. You couldn't tell the road from the side. But yet, even as they were, some of the young, some of the men were climbing the mountain. I went and st- stayed back in the cabin for them, just in case they needed me. But they took some pictures from the mountain, and you just look upon the beauty. And I said to them, even the desert 
a creation of God has its own beauty. You and I ought to be able to say, look at the earth, and say it is good. God created excellence. There's some that will look at the earth and say it's just chaos. God created chaos. God created mistakes. It's interesting, I found out this last uh, this couple months ago, that there is a mistake that God made. There was only one thing that he created that was not very good. I found this out from our young people in our in our Sunday school, or not in our Sunday, but our Friday after school class. She was teaching about God's creation. And she goes, and Nicole was telling the young people, God never made any mistakes. And one kid, sharp as a pencil, said, yeah, he did. He made pink and purple. And I think I'd have to kind of agree with him on that one. But God even looked at pink and purple and said, it is good. Several years ago, a scientist wrote an article entitled, Seven Reasons Why I Believe in God. And he argued his case as follows. Listen to this. And you've heard, you've heard different probably uh, um, ways in writing this or saying this. He says, consider the rotation of the earth. Our globe spins on its axis at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour. If it were just 100 miles an hour, our days and nights would be 10 times as long. The vegetation would freeze in the, night, in the long night or would burn in the long day. And there could be no life. He says, consider the heat of the sun. 12,000 degrees at surface temperature and we're just far enough away to be blessed by that terrific heat. If the sun gave off half of its radiation, we would freeze to death. If he gave off one half more we would all be crispy critters. He goes on to write, consider the 23 degree slant of the earth. If it were different than that, the vapors from the ocean would ice over the continents. There would be no life. He says, consider the moon. If the moon were 50,000 miles away rather than its present distance, twice each day, giant tides would overflow every bit of land mass on the earth. He goes on to write, consider the crust of the earth just a little bit thicker and there could be no life because there would be no oxygen. Or consider the thinness of the atmosphere. If our atmosphere was just a little thinner, then millions of meteors now burning themselves out in space would just plummet this earth into oblivion. And we all heard those types of things, the mixture of the air that we breathe to the way the oceans are, Earth is good. God created to sustain life. He created it so that we could look and see its beauty. The earth is good and all is in it. So not only does God create out of nothing by his word, not only did he create it excellent, then we see the last thing that God does here in First Corinthians or First Corinthians. I'm still in First Corinthians. As we see in Genesis, that God creates for his glory. And that's one thing that you and I need to understand. He doesn't write for our information, but for our transformation, that we may see who he is. God creates everything for his glory. God didn't need to create anything. You need to understand that. He did not need to create us. He did not need to create a world for us. There is nothing necessary about you and I or about this universe. But in love and grace, he chose to create everything so that his glory might be the joy and delight of others. 
Revelation, as we looked at earlier, 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Again, Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. One glance at the sun or watching the impact of a tornado or seeing lightning shoot across the sky convinces us of God's power. There should be no mistake about it. A brief inspection of the delicacy of a leaf or of the wonder of the human hand or witnessing the birth of a child convinces us of God's great wisdom. Who can make all of this but not only make it, but sustain it day after day, year after year. We need to realize, though, that God didn't need to create the universe to show us His glory. God is not somehow incomplete without us. He would receive it, or what He would receive from the created universe. God needed no more glory than which He had already had within the Trinity. Yet in His love and grace, He shares His goodness. So what does Genesis 1 tell us? It tells us that God creates proud of nothing. He creates by His Word. He creates excellence. We use the old phrase, God didn't create no junk. The fact that God created it for His glory. He didn't create it for our information and for our curiosity, but that you and I would be transformed by seeing His creation and be directed to how glorious He is how beautiful He is and who He is. But you may say, that's all fine and dandy, but you're still not answering my question. I want to know how He did it. I want to know all those difficult things in there. How do you? How do we deal with this, this passage of Scripture and deal with faith and science? What's the relationship between them? How do we balance Scripture and science? Is it one or the other or some type of mixture and centuries men and have been trying to figure this out and debating it and fighting over it. I want to take a moment and just compare the creation story with other types of creation stories from other cultures and religions. Hinduism was very interesting. Hinduism is one that's very difficult to nail down. Hinduism has many creation stories, thousands of them, writes Derek Cooper in his book, Christianity and World Religions. He goes on to write that the, to the Hindus, there are innumerable beginnings and endings of creation. They believe that the world has been created and destroyed countless times. For them, it's just a bunch of things that go on. There's really not much interest behind the science of how things work. Buddhist teaching has no beginning of the universe. To the Buddhists, the universe is simply the combined experiences and actions of its inhabitants. Interestingly enough, in Islam, in the beginning, Allah said, be. And then he creates this, this uh, Big Bang type world, and then he submits it to himself. The Islamic version is very close to Genesis, by the way, with several differences. Native American creation stories usually revolve around various animals that were either gods or co-creators. The 
I'm sorry. The ancient Egyptians had many creator gods and associated legends. Thus the world, or more specifically, Egypt speaks more about itself than it does the world, was created in diverse ways according to different parts of the country. So it really just depends. But I think that's the balance that you see here. Where we say, well, how does science coexist with Christianity and with Scripture? Well, in other cultures it doesn't. That's why many cultures would not hold science up as a high regard or as a high study. But yet what I'm here to share with you is I believe that science finds a home in Christianity. In other words, science belongs to Christianity. It goes hand in hand. Whereas most other cultures and religions are more mythological or supernatural or magical of how their origins or their beginnings Christianity views science as God's instrument to peer into the workings of God. And that's one of the things that I find so mystifying. How does someone look into the intricacies of maybe a leaf and say that there's no designer, there's no God? How can you experience the birth of your child and just say, well, this was just a matter of random choices? How does a scientist look into the genes and, and to the, the building blocks of life and say, how did we get this? Is it just, just a big bang randomness to it? How do they look through the Hubble telescope and look into the history past of all sorts of universes beginning and ending and dying and look at the beautiful pictures and say that there is no designer, there is no God. Hence why scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The evidence is there, Romans tells us. God created all these things to show and display His glory. There is general revelation. It just breaks my heart when you hear a scientist do that. Some time ago, I was watching an old show, a National Geographic show. And in it, it was a zoologist, someone who studies animals. And they had a giraffe on the table, and they had dissected a giraffe. That was a big table, by the way. And in it, he's taking it around, and he's showing you all the remarkable uh, parts or the anatomy of a giraffe. And he was saying, look how it works. And he was really uh, focusing on the, the diaphragm and the lungs of the animal, which are way down here, and then transversing all the way down a long, long neck to where he breathes, through his mouth and through his nose. Now, I'm not going to get correct. I'm not a scientist, and I never played bleak. I've never even played one on TV. But as you see here, he's looking at it. He's saying, how does this happen? And what was interesting is he was looking. He says, look at this diaphragm. He says, if it was any different, this animal could not breathe. And he was going on, and at the end, he says this. He makes a mistake, and he says, and he's looking at the camera. He says, look at this giraffe. What a beautiful design. I, I mean, evolution. What is he saying? He himself can recognize there's a great design there. Without it being designed this way, this animal could not exist. But yet, we say science is more powerful. We worship science today. And especially here in America. Science is God. Science is King. So what do we do as Christians? That's a struggle. Maybe you're a school teacher. And you deal with which it's no longer the theory of evolution, but they have elevated to a law. 
And to say that there is no evolution would be to say that you no longer that you're an idiot. For many for many uh, places, those people who those scientists who believe in a God and Creator and pursue those types of things, they find the doors to publishing, the doors to tenure, the doors to teaching closed to them. So how do we deal with that? There are some that are even trying to mission around because they want Scripture to be, they want to just, let's lessen Scripture and let science come up because if you and I don't change, we are going to be unaccepted in the world. But I believe that science finds its home in Christianity for it's God's tool to view His works. There's even debates within Christianity. One is intelligent design. Intelligent design is the theory that the complexity of biological structures demonstrate the need for intelligence and evolution. I already fell asleep, did you? Intelligent design simply says, I look at creation and we see that there's design. As much as if you, if I, if you were to walk in this morning and if I would have had a beautiful painting up here, you would say, wow, who painted that painting? You wouldn't say, wow. That just appeared. It wasn't here last Sunday. How did it get there? I came up and said, yeah. I just said, painting, let there be. He'd say, yeah, right. If I were to tell you, well, yeah, you know, last night I had a creative desire spark, and I just took a bunch of paint and started throwing it on there, and look what it created. Now, I know some paintings look like that, but we're talking something that's discernible. And if I said, I just threw all that paint on there, you would say, no, no. There must be a painter. There must be an author. There must be someone who made it so. That's what we find here in intelligent design. Not all of those who believe in intelligent design are creationists. Not all of them believe in the Bible. They just look and say there must be a design. They're intelligent enough and honest enough to say, "Eh, we don't have all the answers, but there is a design here. Theistic evolution. That's one in which there are many people who believe God's word, but yet they struggle with science. And in order to be sometimes, in my view, this is my view, there's some who will capitulate to science and make scripture less powerful and less authoritative. And say, well, we'll only accept scripture as long as science agrees with it. I think that's a dangerous road to to take. Again, I don't believe the the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It's not giving us information as much, again, as it's leading us to who God is. The theistic evolution is a big one. In other words, we need to just kind of understand it in a different type of way. We can debate about young earth versus old earth. Is it an old earth or is it a young earth? There's all these types of debates that happen. And it's enjoyable sometimes to get into there. But before I put you to sleep, that's not where we're going this morning. Because Genesis, once again, let me give it to you, is not here to satisfy your scientific curiosity or even to appear into things that you and I do not understand. Genesis 1 is to give us a creation account that displays God's character through the world he has created. Let me give you this. God displays his holiness in creating a good, excellent we get to see His holiness, a pure world in which it is good and which is excellent. God displays His mercy in creating a sustaining universe, 
a universe in which you and I could live and thrive. God displays his sovereignty in creating a universe for his glory in which he says it's mine. I created out of nothing and this is mine. And he allows us to share in it. Now when we see those types of things, that's what God is telling us. This is what I'm revealing to you. But you and I, our response today to this display of God's character should be obedience and faith by celebrating and worship a creative God who is intelligent, who is imaginative, and who is complex. We have a God who's able to do those things that we yearn to see. He's intelligent to the point that He knows how to sustain life. He created even to the the very little uh, 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 invisible things of life that we do not see. He's imaginative. He creates all types of birds and animals and and fishes, and and all types of life, birds and plants, and so on and so forth. But he's also a complex God. Looking into his world and looking into his mind can be difficult and frustrating, but yet it works together even in a simplistic way. For you and I, we're called to not just look at it and say, oh, that's nice and that's quaint. But you and I are also called to trust in the Genesis 1 account that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and gives us a story. It's more more than mythology. It's more than tradition. It's life for you and I. We need to hold dear to this as it's being attacked and ripped from, not only from the secular world, but also from many who profess Christ. Why? Because if we take it and say it's nothing but just a story, we rob God of his true worth. Let us today worship a God who's creative in his intelligence, in his imagination, and in his complexity. Thank you, Father, just for displaying your character and creation. Father, I ask that you would just open up our hearts that we may see, maybe sometimes for the first time, your wonderful display of holiness and excellence and beauty and and providence and sovereignty. Lord, may this encourage us. Lord, not lead us to despair and say, but I still don't know how old the earth is. How do we reconcile science and, and faith? Father, that's not what you called us to. You called us to look into the beauty of your creation and to trust that you are a good God. Father, I pray that this display of your holiness, of your mercy and your sovereignty will lead us to a deeper worship in which we love you, trust you, and Father, worship you for who you are. I pray for the strength to live this out. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.